0: Hello, and welcome to episode 93 of the Implant Games Podcast. I am your host, Chris Kenty and I have a great show lined up for you today. So, uh, first, I am back. Uh, last Saturday, um, I did get married. Uh, we got married right here uh, at this place. We had an outdoor ceremony. Uh, thankfully, it did not rain. And uh, everything went really well and then last week uh, we went on our honeymoon and then uh, late last week got back and uh, now we're gonna get back into the swing of things like normal so for everybody that left a, a nice thoughtful comment uh, on the on the YouTube channel you know wishing me well thank you very much and uh, let's go ahead and get started with the news. Um, so, this is going to, this episode's gonna be a bit uh, YouTube heavy. A lot of the stories that kinda tickled my fancy this week were more in line with YouTube than retro gaming or hardware and things like that. Um, so, that's what I'm gonna talk about. I know sometimes people really do enjoy that kinda talk, my insight, what I've learned uh, through this journey. Um, so, hopefully, um, that's what we're gonna talk about. So, uh, the first thing is, has to do with uh, fair use and copyright. Um, Nintendo strikes down a promising NES art book Kickstarter. Um, I don't remember the exact name of this art book, um, but it pretty much to me looked like a book with NES screenshots, a little bit of text, like a a coffee table book of sorts. Um, Nintendo basically took down the Kickstarter or claimed their lawyers got involved and the Kickstarter was taken down rather than challenging it. And, uh, you know, it kind of always, when I read these things, it always makes me think about fair use and how it applies to videos. Um, and transformative art and and things like that. Whenever I talk about this, there's always a great discussion in the the comments. What is, what isn't, what you own, what you don't own, and things like that. So we talked about this uh, either the last episode or a couple episodes ago where somebody had taken my recorded footage uh, without my permission. Some people said, well, you don't own the footage. Anybody can use it. Other people said, no, you created that and somebody else can't come and take it don't know what the answer is but you know the more we talk about it the more we all learn and grow together Um, so uh, my, my thoughts on this is taking an emulator screenshot of Zelda and plastering it on a plastering it on a book with a little bit of text really isn't transformative um, you're still presenting a screenshot of a game that somebody else owns you're basically trying to sell a book full of screenshots that you don't own um, it's not transforming you know that, zelda that mario that castlevania or whatever and turning it into something else it is still a picture that you don't own that you are charging money for now i tend to stay away from the monetary gain uh, aspect of copyright and fair use because it really has nothing to do with copyright and fair use um you know whether you're selling it or not it's still a violation of somebody else's copyright or it isn't a violation of somebody else's copyright Um, So the way I kind of look at this is taking somebody else's photos, right? So I use a lot of different art in my videos, and I usually always get them from a creative Commons source. Um, And if I can't, I credit it the best I can, but I'm not selling those photos to somebody else. I'm not taking all of these images I found online and burning them onto a CD and selling it or selling it as um, an image compilation on my website or printing it on a book and then selling somebody else's art, you know, for my own monetary gains. So I think that's where something like, you know, if you stick Mario in the thumbnail of your YouTube video, Nintendo isn't going to do anything about it. Um, whether that's right or wrong or inconsistent is open for debate, but I don't know when this trend started on Kickstarter. Um, Uh, Pat the NES Punk has a book that he doesn't have legal troubles in because he's not selling a book full of screenshots. He's selling like a history book. Um, And the images that are there are for reference purposes, not, you know, the entire point of the book. And that's kind of the difference. Taking a box shot, a couple of screenshots, and a picture of the cartridge, that's not what you're selling. You're selling the history of the NES. Whereas you take an NES art book and are selling, you know, screenshots from an emulator you're not really you know now you're kind of in a weird area where your product is somebody else's art versus something like Pat the NES where his art is you know what he is selling those words that he is writing the information that he's gathered his star ratings and the other pieces are reference material uh, which is allowed so I don't really think anyone got too upset with this because to me it seems so obviously wrong but nes strikes down a promising nes art book on kickstarter that's my thoughts on it um this reminded the next story reminded me i really need to watch wreck it ralph again uh wreck it ralph 2 is coming out in 2018 i believe this was made by disney um but wreck it ralph was a movie and a 3D animated movie that I never got into. Someone told me to watch it. I watched it and I absolutely fell in love. I thought it was really charming. I thought it had a really a lot of really nice throwbacks to like Street Fighter, to Sonic the Hedgehog, to Qbert. Um they did a really nice job painting this silly world of what happens to video game characters, you know, when they They're on their downtime, sort of like Toy Story with video games, and it was a really charming story, you know, as far as uh, children, family-style movies go, Um, so I think it's really cool that there's a, a sequel coming out, and it's a lot more interesting than, say, the Tetris trilogy. All right, the next bit of news uh, comes from E3, but I had somehow missed, Um, and this is the RetroBit Generations game console. Uh, This was announced at E3. It is a clone system, Uh, but there are two things that make this clone system uh, really interesting, and I hope is the future of clone systems. So, the first one is, is it has HDMI out, a real digital signal, uh, which is awesome. Now, for the last two decades all of these or most of these clone systems obviously the retron 5 has hdmi uh, but most Uh, but most of these systems are composite only and if you hook them up to a high def flat panel usually they're going to look like garbage modern flat panels interpret that composite signal as 4di deinterlace it and make basically a blurry mess on your TV Uh, these do tend to work pretty okay on a CRT TV um, a CRT television Um, I own a couple but I don't have any of them hooked up at the moment Uh, but stuff like HDMI is really cool I think it is a way to bring a lot of these classic titles to you know modern gamers that maybe didn't or aren't interested in collecting old systems. It's getting expensive. Um, it does have composite, it does have HDMI, but what's really cool is it's supported by Um, I believe Data East and Capcom, and from what I can tell these appear to be the arcade versions of some of these titles 1942, 1943, uh, Ghost and Goblins, there's something like 60 titles. I'm sure many of these have never been ported to another system um, Or maybe even ever released on some sort of arcade compilation disc, so I think that's really cool Um, I hope that we start to see more systems like this Um, We all for the most part, you know, are sad or are resistant to the change to digital distribution, buying games digitally and never owning a physical object, and I think this is a neat way to kind of bridge that gap, so rather than owning, you know, a disc that may or may not work when your Xbox 360 or Xbox One or console of choice fails down the line, you actually own a a physical box that has the games on them digitally, but you still own the physical thing, and there's no updates, and there's no patches, you just play it in and it works and it's a really cool way to redistribute some of these old arcade games um, or any console game for that matter in pristine hdmi i think that's really really awesome um, it also has genesis style controllers which are usually pretty good i do own a couple of clone genesis controllers a uh, tv game type of deals ea had a couple Um, the d-pads are never as good as like the six button genesis pad or even the sega saturn controller but still uh, it's a classic style of controller and uh, i don't see myself buying one of these but i can see something like this in the future really grabbing me Um, this would be a really cool way to have uh, a dreamcast 2 you know not trying to have uh, you know a phantom console but something you know like a little android machine you know you plug it in hdmi and you have a bunch of dreamcast games on there and it just works that to me would be really really cool especially for a lot of those rare titles um, and again dreamcast stuff is expensive the hardware they didn't sell that many of them a lot of them i'm sure are gone and stuff like this like the Retrobit generations i hope is how kind of this classic hobby you know continues to evolve into the future Alright, so the the main topic of today's show is gonna be about uh, YouTube and rumors and, uh, I don't know, fear. People create a big stir about, oh no, um, all of my, you know, I've lost hundreds of subscribers and YouTube has deleted a bunch of my subs and everybody quick check and make sure you're still subscribed to me and all of this kind of nonsense. Um, and it kind of drives me nuts when people kind of create that false fear now i know it makes for an entertaining youtube video and it's always fun to gang up on google and youtube and, and call them you know this evil company that's screwing over everybody and all of that but at times i feel like people don't apply any real logic so i've been watching like every youtuber i've pay attention to my subscribers' uh, views and revenue and try and keep track of what is working and what's not working um, and try new things and see if those are working and not working and just pay attention. Um, So this started on June 14th, so just, uh, just less than a month ago, everybody had a massive boost in their subscriber count. Like five to ten times more subscribers that day than they normally get. Now that's usually a red flag. Either one of two things are happening. Either one of your videos magically you know, worked in Google's algorithm and you're getting thousands or tens of thousands of views you don't normally receive, which is causing subscribers, uh, but that's not what happened on June 14th. On June 14th, everything was the same except for the, the subscriber count so I think I had like 49 that day which is about five times more than usual and none of my videos had gone viral or whatever you'd want to call it so you wait two days and you check your Google Analytics and you can see that on that day I had 10 subs not 49 and this trend continued for the next two weeks so for the next two weeks I would get 20 subs a day when I'd usually get 7 or 8 And it didn't really make any sense because the total subscriber count didn't match the Google Analytics. The Google Analytics looked fairly normal. However, the subscriber count was growing astronomically. It was insane. Um, At one point, it was like 400 over the past uh, 30 days. Um, But Google Analytics was reporting 270. So there's a big discrepancy of about 130. So... That happens for two weeks, six fourteen, massive, everybody got a massive spike. You can go on Social Blade, look up any of your favorite YouTubers, and you're going to see a really giant anomaly, an anomaly. Um, Then on two weeks later, so that was June 14th, June 28th, all of a sudden there was a massive decline. So it showed that I had lost uh, my subscriber count reduced by like 139 or something like that, right? Like, holy cow, I lost 139 subscribers in one day wait two days check back on your youtube analytics you didn't lose 139 subs the bar on google analytics looks exactly the same for me that's about seven to ten percent growth over the past 28 days nothing changed the only thing that changed was the subscriber count was artificially high uh, for two weeks and then it recalibrated and went back to normal Everybody experienced this. This was on Twitter. If you follow any YouTubers at all, especially in the the mid to I don't know hundred thousand range, they're all hyper focused on it. It's just it is what it is. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but then it's when people start dousing the fire. So. Alpha Omega Sin started retweeting a couple of people saying, Hey, I was subscribed to you and now I'm not. What's going on? So then he creates a big giant stink making this one either person that was never subscribed to him or made it up or is just some random anomaly and made it this huge deal. And then when somebody like that, you know, makes that, then you know, it really catches fire. He's he's a big voice in the community, and everybody freaks out and YouTube's uns, you know unsubscribing. I'm losing subs, and it's not my fault. And uh check and make sure you're still subscribed to me. I'm quite confident, all of you are still subscribed to me, and YouTube probably didn't unsub any of you from me. Uh, the other piece of this is just inactive accounts. So something like Twitter doesn't really care if they have a bunch of robo accounts that aren't real people because they're a growing company that's trying to show, hey, we have, you know, a growth of people. So they leave the bots in there. YouTube and Google, they don't have to have that artificial inflated number. So they do remove spam accounts. Um, I can see it when I go to my inbox folder on YouTube. I can see Uh, my spam folder and once or twice a week I have some stupid spam account trying to make me join some stupid network and then that account gets deleted because that's all it is is a scam. Um, So that's the other piece of it Um, and that's it that's all that happens so basically uh, the YouTube subtotal artificially went up from June 14th, it went back down on June 28th, and nothing really happened. Um, I don't understand, I guess I say this all the time, why people freak out. When they had this huge boost, nobody was complaining, oh my god, YouTube is broken. But then when things came back down to earth, that's when the conspiracy theories start. So, if you saw any videos like that, or anybody talking about it, honestly, it's probably 99.5% absolute nonsense. Don't buy into that kind of... Don't buy into that kind of junk. So this show is running a little shorter than I thought. So for that, I apologize. I think we're just going to move right into the cheap games segment. Mm, Hang on. All right. I just spent the last three minutes uh, whipping together another segment. So this actually was inspired probably back in episode 88 or 89. Uh, I believe Gonzalo in or... In uh, Portugal, reference 1988 or 1989 being an awesome year for Sega. So we're on episode 93. Um, so I went through and quickly grabbed a bunch of games that I absolutely love from 1993. Um, so the first being Sonic CD. Now, Sonic CD was the best-selling Sega CD game, or Mega CD game, I believe, it sold over a million units, so it's not super rare, um, but then again, as a, for a Sonic game, it's not super common either. Most people that have Sega CD or Mega CD collections don't get rid of it, there's not a huge number out there, so it kind of inflates the price. Um, this was a game I originally played on the PC, strangely enough, I and mean, it's a game that I really struggled with as a kid, but as an adult, I found it ended up being a game that I really enjoy. Uh, This game is notorious for its North American soundtrack, which was changed from Europe and Japan. However, I think the American soundtrack is still pretty stunning, and uh, the European and Japanese soundtrack is amazing too, but I kind of prefer the one that I grew up with. Uh, Awesome atmospheric music, I believe by... I don't even know I want to say Phil Spencer but that doesn't seem right at all (laughs) last week uh, last week I had a funny faux pas but uh, it, it escapes me now Magical Sound Garden instead of Magical Sound Shower. um. So anyway, Sonic CD came out in 1993 and is easily my favorite game on the Sega CD. Now the next one is a bit of a hidden gem. I talk about it a lot and that's The Lost Vikings. This was available at least in North America on both the Genesis and the Super Nintendo. Uh, What's really cool about The Lost Vikings is you have three Vikings that you've can control on the fly and each do different things so one can jump uh, one has a shield another one can shoot arrows they each like do one or two different things Um, and then you basically flip switches and kill enemies and use these three characters unique powers to get through the level. Um, and what makes it really awesome is the levels are really, really craftily designed. Like, again, I don't usually talk about game design and, you know, what makes this specific level the greatest thing in the world, because I don't really care. mm <clears throat> All I really care about is how much fun I'm having, whether I'm having fun playing like the most perfectly brilliant thing ever, or whether I'm having fun playing something that someone threw together and it just happened to be, you know, work. I don't really care. All I care about is how a game makes me feel. Uh, but this game is one of those where it's like when you get through some of the tougher puzzles and some of the tougher solutions, you're like, man, you know, somebody put some serious time and effort into this and it's really, really cool. Uh, The next one is our non-SEGA entry, and that is Batman Returns. So I've talked about this game a few times uh, on the YouTube channel now. My entire life I thought Batman Returns on the Super Nintendo was a below average game. Uh, Half beat-em-up, half action platformer, a couple of driving stages, and people didn't really seem to, to dig it. Everyone always talks about Streets of Rage or Final Fight or the Ninja Turtle games. Now... Batman Returns was made by Konami who made the awesome Turtles beat up games and Batman Returns on the Super Nintendo is actually pretty damn awesome. Uh, This starts with the atmosphere. Uh, The Super Nintendo seems perfect for recreating that uh, that Tim Burton style music. Now, I don't remember who actually made the soundtrack in Batman and Batman Returns, uh, but the Super Nintendo was able to recreate that feeling really, really well, and it's really awesome to listen to loud. Uh, The graphics are also pretty awesome for the Super Nintendo. Uh, A lot of color like you'd expect, but some pretty decent animation some really large characters and then of course since it's konami and it's a beat-em-up the controls are really really smooth now it's a beat-em-up so it's not the deepest game i've ever played not even the deepest beat-em-up i've ever played uh, but it's still a lot of fun now there are some side-scrolling stages which change up the controls and they aren't that great but they're easy enough where you you suffer through them to get to the next beat-em-up part and it's pretty awesome and then there is one racing stage i believe that kind of meh But uh, the difficulty balance on this is really well. Anybody can pick this up and start punching and grabbing and throwing. And it's just a ton of fun. So that game's been going up in price lately. It seems like more and more people are kind of in tune with Batman Returns. And uh, you should be too. It's awesome. My favorite Batman Returns game on any platform because they were all different. Uh, next, of course, would be Gunstar Heroes. This was made by Treasure. This is a side-scrolling action game. And uh, for me, this... Not a huge side-scrolling action fan or even a side-scrolling shooting fan. Um, I don't know why. I just prefer games like our type uh, spaceship shooters, where you have full freedom of movement rather than gravity holding you down. Uh, but Gunstar Heroes is such a technical showpiece for what was capable on the Sega Genesis. Now, remember, this came out in 1988 in Japan. Um, so this was five years later, and they really pulled out all the stops with some really awesome line-scrolling effects, pseudo-3D effects, and just an absolutely huge huge amount of bullets on the screen at any given time and it's really really elevates the game now the boss fights in this game are pretty awesome that's what the game is known for Uh, they can be particularly hard until you learn the patterns and learning patterns is part of trial and error and what can make a lot of these classic games fun so i want to say gunstar heroes is actually owned by sega not treasure so it's been re-released on a million different compilations but one of my favorite games from 1993 now the next game is the most expensive on the list unfortunately when i bought this game it was 20 or 30 dollars now it's well over 100 uh, and that's android assault on the sega cd this is a side-scrolling shmup or shoot-em-up what i really like about this game again is is the whole package really awesome difficulty curve um you there's four weapons to upgrade, and then it ends up with you being like a mech moving throughout the screen. Uh, but there's something really magical about the uh, the 80s synth rock um, soundtrack, uh, the really vibrant Genesis-style graphics, lots of parallax scrolling, uh, satisfying bosses, and uh, again, a really nice difficulty curve. This is not the hardest shmup I've ever played. It's probably one of the easiest, but again, it makes it really, really accessible and really easy to recommend. Now, again, it's expensive the Sega CD doesn't have any copyright protection so you know if you choose to go that route i wouldn't blame you But those are five games, uh, for me, that really define 1993. So now let's move to the end of our show, now that we've got this filled up uh, into something a lot better, and that, of course, is the cheap game segment of the show. So collecting video games, collecting retro video games can be very expensive, uh, but it doesn't have to be. There are a ton of awesome games out there for under $5, so... Like always, I'm going to look at two. One that I paid $5 for, but is more expensive today. Another one that I paid less than $5 for that you can get for less than $5 today. And like uh, the last episode, these are both going to be Xbox games again. Now, I've been kind of going on an Xbox binge lately. um, So I'm going to try and mix things up in future episodes so it's not always Xbox. But that's what I've got today. Now, this I paid. I'm going to try and not screw up the camera. This I paid 99 Oh, there it went. This I paid 99 cents for and this is EA's Black for the Xbox. Now, if you're subscribed to the YouTube channel, I did just do a big review of this game. Um, this was released in 2006, uh, so that's after the Xbox 360 already came out uh, in the U.S. Um, so it didn't sell like a million units or anything like that. Um, and it goes for between 8 and $10 today, at least on eBay. I'm sure you can find this cheaper actually in the wild. Uh, people not clued into... Um, you know how much this game does go for now, um, but this game actually fell in love with this is a first-person shooter now I'm not a huge first-person shooter fan, but like I mentioned a few moments ago I absolutely love games like Gunstar uh, And to me black is like if Gunstar Heroes was a first-person shooter This game is all about the visuals and all about the audio and it has some of the most Satisfying shooting I've ever experienced in a first-person shooter. Every bullet, every hit, every everything that you do is exaggerated and feels like a special event. Every time you pull the trigger, something amazing happens, and it makes it a lot of fun to play. It's a, it's a short game, single-player only. Again, something that appeals to me. Um, I sat down, I got through it in six hours, and uh, easily my favorite single-player campaign. And a first-person shooter uh, ever so far. The only thing, the things I really have to compare it to would be Halo. Um, this blows Halo away as far as the single-player campaign goes, and then Red Faction, uh, which I didn't particularly enjoy, so, you know, the bar is low there. Uh, the story in black is not as good as either of those games, but it does have some cool FMV, live-action FMV, like in the old days, which, again, I thought was a really cool touch. So, if you see black for less than a fiver, definitely pick it Even if you're not into first person shooters like me, I think you'll really dig it. Just a sweet sweet fun game really reminds me of Gunstar Heroes if Gunstar Heroes was a first person shooter. Uh, The biggest complaints uh, from what I can tell are people kind of felt like the enemies were meat sponges, took too many shots to take down, and then the checkpoint system. Um, there's not a lot of checkpoints in the game now I tend to play very conservative when I play first-person shooters and this goes back to the halo days if you remember halo 1 uh, the pistol was the best weapon in the game you could zoom in three shots to the head pretty much every enemy went down it was a really great weapon so that's kind of how I still play first-person shooters and black plays into that really well just about every weapon uh, you can zoom in few shots to the head or one really well-played shot to the head and they go down. Uh, if you're more of the aggressive type where you want to put it on full auto and then you know get up close and personal you're probably gonna have uh, a different experience than I had so keep that in mind. The next game still goes for less than five dollars this was recommended to me I believe by too quick uh, on YouTube so thank you for pointing this out I paid four ninety-nine for this you can buy this on eBay right now with shipping for four dollars or less This is a platformer, a 3D platformer, and uh, it actually happens to be a pretty awesome one at that. Um, the premise of the game is fairly simple. It's a 3D platformer. The levels are s- mostly linear. Um, but as you progress through the game, you gain new powers. And you can turn into different reptiles that do different things. So early on, you are this guy. And he has you know a double jump and things like that. And then the next one you get uh, is someone who can create bombs. And uh, you can roll those bombs at different characters. And what I really enjoy about this is that the level structure is kinda pushes you to use the different characters. So instead of just being a weird gimmick, oh, I can roll bombs, uh, it's actually integral to the gameplay, and I love stuff like that. It makes it a lot of fun to, to play around, experiment, and solve puzzles, and you know that gives you a feeling of reward and satisfaction. So, uh, Scalar, I will probably be playing through to completion over the next week or two and giving that a proper review. Uh, that was on GameCube and PlayStation 2, at least in America, and uh, is totally worth uh, your 4 or $5. Dollars. All right guys, so that is going to do it for this show. So it was good to be back and uh, let's see, how do we end this show? If you're watching this show on YouTube and want to subscribe to it like a normal MP3 podcast, check the description below. I'll have a link to the RSS feed, to the iTunes, or to the Google Play. If you're listening to the show, uh, you know, through it like a normal podcast and you want to watch it, see my face, or watch any of the other content that I create during the week, check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash implantgames. And until next time, have a great week.